Hello and welcome to Slower Travel. I'm Ian. You know, that was a bit of a, a breaking transmission, wasn't it? Uh, it's been three weeks of absolute madness here at Slower Travel Towers with three different hospital visits uh, in three different hospitals, an operation, uh, a new job that I started and then immediately left. Sorry about that. And um, yeah, it's, it's been a little bit more hectic than usual. Fingers crossed. That we're back on an even keel now, though, and I can bring you the world's best podcast about sitting on a bus. Uh, admittedly, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the only one, but, you know, if there's no competition, what can I say? This week's trip is on the 412 from York to Weatherby. Uh, definitely not the 142, as I said on the previous episode. This route only lasts for about half an hour, so there's a bit more history stuff in here than normal. I mean, I, I could have written another thousand words about the Hughes Bridge in York, but um, it was a thoroughly pleasant journey nonetheless, and there's a fantastic old lady on it that made everything worth it. Now, before we get cracking, some quick announcements for you. Luke, who did the trip to Hollyhead with me uh, last year, he turned 40 this week, so happy birthday, Luke. Uh, we had a very good curry after Hyde United's 1-1 draw with Geisley. Maybe we should have nicked that, that one, really, but never mind. And Now, I think this is quite controversial, but Luke... And his dad, they didn't have a starter. The rest of us did, but uh, they, they didn't. I mean, they, they were umming and ahhing about poppadoms and a, a tray of dips, which, well, I mean, what, what can you say about that? Someone who did have a starter, though, was the Prince of the Mods, Lewis, who's off to Bucharest this week. Uh, I don't think he'll be going on any buses, though, because uh, that's not his thing, and also it's a work trip. But, but I've waffled long enough. It's time to get yourself comfy. I assume you've already got yourself a brew and maybe even a biscuit or two. So here we go with the 412 from York to Weatherby. UK. Long story short, writes about traveling around the UK on local buses, which I admit is a bit of a niche hobby. I don't know, that sounds pretty cool. A walking stick appears at the top of the stairs on the double-decker. Huffing up the final couple of steps just behind it is an old lady. She must be getting on for 80, maybe even 85. She surveys a scene of culinary destruction on the floor. Tuna and sweet corn butty scattered beneath the seats and in the aisle. She adjusts a chestnut-coloured wig and takes a deep breath. Eee, someone's wasted that dinner. Just look at the state of all this. There'll be ducks going hungry. Maybe the bus fairies will clean it up, an M&S devotee says from the seat above the driver's cabin. Oh, I doubt it, love, the pensioner replies. Kids nowadays, eee. I've just had a Greg's meal deal, you know. £4.80. You get all sorts with it, and I scoffed a lot. Oh, I'm a greedy pig, she straightens her hair again, backheels a piece of smush sandwich towards me and settles in on the other front row seat for our jaunt to Weatherby. Our bus takes off from Piccadilly, right in the heart of York's action. The broad shopping thoroughfare of Parliament Street is opposite, with the heaving shambles market barely a couple of minutes away. A few seconds later, we're taken over the Ooze Bridge, an earlier incarnation of which held a church, a prison, 
and the first public toilets in England. Unveiled in the 14th century, back then the waste from these pissing holes fell straight into the waters below. This no doubt kept any river traffic on its toes and gave any fish caught nearby a certain piquancy. York, it turns out, is the crucible of Britain's lavatorial history. Just around the corner, in what is now Yeats's beer garden, was a cottage where John Chesterman and Stuart Feather bonded over the urinals. This being 1956, persecution of gay men was widespread. When a colleague of Chesterman stumbled across the couple's relationship and outed him, Chesterman found himself demoted at work. Hounded out of the home city, the pair moved to London in the early 1960s. They became involved right at the beginning of the Gay Liberation Front and organised the UK's first gay pride march in 1972. The Ouse Bridge also has a memorial plaque for St Margaret Clitheroe, who was executed on it in 1586. A convert to Catholicism when it was dangerous to pledge allegiance to Rome, she sheltered men of the cloth at a home and another nearby property. Already imprisoned three times for refusing to go to church, the authorities raided her home and frightened one of her kids into revealing the priest hall. Arrested and put on trial, she refused to enter a plea to save her family from being interrogated and probably tortured. Despite being pregnant with a fourth child, refusing to plea carried an automatic sentence of being crushed to death. That Good Friday, spread-eagled on the bridge, she lay beneath her own front door, which then had hundreds of pounds of rocks piled on top of it. She died after a quarter of an hour. We soon come across the one part of town that post-war developers put their cost-cutting mitts on. Sitting in sight of the Norman city walls, these clunky blocks on Rougier Street are contrary to the wonderful old structures that dominate almost every other nook of the centre. I don't have an allergy to modernist buildings, just a slight intolerance, but you know something's wrong when even the Malmaison looks like a tax office. Those city walls are abuzz with tourists, gazing out into the forecourt of the railway station, which was the world's largest when it opened in 1877. It's a hive of activity today, but with train strikes due later in the week, it'll be much quieter tomorrow. The coaches on the strike days between Manchester and Yorkshire are long sold out. Our route on the 412 pushes down Holgate Road, taking in timeless townhouses and Georgian terraces. The bricks dance the full colour spectrum between perfectly cooked salmon and incinerated donna meat. The sun makes a belated appearance as we reach suburban Acom, scorching the clouds away and bringing some much needed warmth to my bare legs. These outlying areas, with the shopping parades and garages and other ephemera of daily life, are what keep York going. The tourists won't see them, but a place so reliant on the money of day-trippers still needs its essentials to keep the locals ticking along. You can't do a big shop inside the city walls. Notwithstanding the smell of discarded tuna, it's a relief that this is a double-decker. The hedgerows as we head into the countryside are leviathans, 
almost reaching the upstairs windows and affording the passengers below a view of nothing but green leaves streaking by. A man with a bulldog's neck, all muscly yet full of deep skin crevices, swaps places with the M&S lady as we reach Ruffeth. I'm six foot two, he says within seconds of sitting down. But even I can't see over them chuffing edges. I mean, what's point at living in sticks if you can't see out? Now, I know I'm often mocked for for me uh, what some people think of as fanciful accents, but I'm not making this... I'm genuinely not making any of this up. I've just listened back to uh, the, the impression that fella then and the old lady earlier on and the M&S lady. And genuine, honestly, genuinely, that's what they sound like. Oh, and uh, Eleanor's just come in as well. You might be able to hear her, her keys rustling in the hallway as she she locks the front door. Hi, Rel. Hello. Oh, I hope you could hear her there. Oh, she says she's tired. She's just been out to uh, pick some bits up from from Levenjim. She's been she's been to Tesco, I think. Anyway, uh, we we better get back on with uh, the podcast, haven't we? After that little interlude. Ruffeth is full of cottages with steep-angled terracotta roofs, while the creamy bricks of the village church gleam. The sunlight glints off the boot scraper by its main door. A tomb stands above all the others in the graveyard. It's occupied by the Middleton family, including four generations of men called George. They were the local squires, living at Ruffeth Hall, the tree-lined gates of which we pass a couple of minutes later. Cows and their calves chew their contented chews on the road to Longmaston, while a squadron of sheep gorge their way through a pasture a couple of fields further on. A red kite gives slow wafts of its heavy wings over the sun in, while a buzzard circles above a cenotaph a mile beyond the village on Tockwith Road. Why is there a huge monument in the middle of nowhere, though? This is the site of one of the most pivotal clashes in British history, the Battle of Marston Moor. The largest conflagration of the civil wars, the parliamentarians and Scottish covenanters routed the royalists here in July 1644. Oliver Cromwell's cavalry inflicted much of the damage, with around 5,000 of Charles I's men slain in just two hours. It was a decisive victory. The Cavaliers lost control of the north of England, and ultimately, the King lost his head. A model of a plane made from contortions of galvanised steel sits at the entrance to Tockwith. It was here in the early hours of October 9th, 1945, that a Stirling bomber stalled during a turn while coming in to land on a training flight. The pilot, 22-year-old flight officer Sidney Bunting, couldn't regain control and the aircraft crashed onto the village's main street. It skittled 19 houses, killing all six personnel on board and claiming the life of Totwith's postmaster, Arthur Carlyle. One of the crew was Sergeant Albert Bonnus, a local footballer who'd played in the Football League for Darlington, Hartlepool, Chesterfield and York. An RAF wireless operator during the war, He'd already had a close shave when being forced to parachute out of his plane over Manchester. This entitled him to join the Caterpillar Club. If he'd have landed over the sea, 
he could have applied for the Goldfish Club instead. Based there for a while, Clark Gable had moved on from RAF Marston Moor by the time the bomber made its final descent. We pass what's left of its runway on the outskirts of the village. Red and white rumble strips show it's been converted in part into a racing track. It's a straight line to Weatherby for the last few miles. The road evolves from rocking the top deck as though we're in a crow's nest during a hurricane to a serene glide the more we close in on town. Swallows waz along parallel to the bus, barely breaking a sweat to keep up, before jackknifing into our path and riding the air pressure up and over the roof. We're taken past Weatherby Racecourse, whose most famous meeting has nothing to do with horses. It's the home of the Mascot Gold Cup, a chaotic scramble of people in furry costumes, stumbling along the one furlong distance as they hop, skip and fall over half a dozen fences. The 2023 winner was a panto horse, who went one better than its runner-up spot last year, romping clear of a crocodile-cum-dinosaur. There's no such frivolity today, though. The circuit is empty, save for a pair of mobile watering devices, which creep forward while spraying a fine mist from their outstretched arms. Both of the other upstairs passengers are on their way to Harrogate, and with our bus running around 15 minutes late, they're cutting it fine for making the X70. Sure enough, it's waiting beside Weatherby bus station when we reach the town centre, and the man with the thick neck legs it downstairs, promising to hold their onward connection from leaving without the old lady. He needn't have bothered. With one last resetting of the hairpiece, she bounds off behind him, twirling a walking stick in a Dick Van Dyke blur. Anybody scouting for runners in the mascot gold cup will have taken note. So there we go, that's the 412 from York to Weatherby in the bag and the end of this three-part adventure. We'll be coming back to Weatherby in a future episode when I take the X99 to there from Leeds, but I'll need to write it up first, did it a couple of months ago. Before then though, I've already got the next three trips written and ready to record. I'm not sure whether it'll be a solo Manchester one, the uh, 219 to Ashton Underline to be precise, or a coastal Lancashire odyssey with Luke just yet, but tune in on Friday to find out. And honestly, it really will be ready on Friday come hell or high water. Make sure you click the subscribe button and all that jazz. Slower Travel is a Go Away Northerner production. Sorry, Go Away Northerner production. I promised I'd say it like that. It was originally said to me by uh, this person once upon a time. It's written, read and edited by me, Ian Burke. The music is by Mesita, and go and check his stuff out on Spotify or download all his back catalogue for free over at mesitamusic.com. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I'll see you next time for some more slower travel. Bye for now. Slower travel, slower travel.co.uk. It's slower travel.co.uk.